Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Nick Gosling, and we are on part five of the Libertarian Christian Mission and Core Value Statements. So we're going to talk about Libertarian Christian Core Value number four, which is Social Institutions Matter for Human Flourishing. If you are just now joining us on our podcast for the very first time, you're probably expecting us to tell you to go back and listen to parts one through four, and uh, we would certainly encourage you to do that. However, if you continue listening now, it's okay to go back later and then and and catch up. It's not a problem at all. Uh, so what we want to talk about is why social institutions matter for human flourishing. Uh, in the previous episode, we did talk about how we were made for community, how human beings were not made to be isolated individuals, uh, and what what all that entails and why why that's important to us. So go back and listen to that episode when you're done with this one. But we also wanted to declare and share with you that we believe that human flourishing truly matters in the Christian's life and in the Christian's vocation. It's not just something that we are using as just this nice, cool word in our core values to be like, hey, we believe in human flourishing. No, it's really, really core to our value because we know we have the advantage of 200 years of really rapid human flourishing, and it's pretty obvious to us that this is good. Human flourishing is good. And one of the things that matters toward doing that is the only thing that matters, but is social institutions. And what we need to talk about what that means. So as we jump in, we should talk about what we mean by human flourishing, and then we'll talk about what institutions we're talking about here. So we need to talk first about what, what do we mean by human flourishing? And it's sometimes common for people to think of human flourishing as just peace, you know, and in some ways, of course, peace and human flourishing go hand in hand. But when we think of the word peace, we often don't think of something beyond the mere absence of violence. The Jewish term shalom means something more along the lines of peace and human flourishing. And it's important that we kind of keep those together. Human flourishing is about living as God intends us to live, in harmony with one another, in harmony with God's will, God's purposes for us. We flourish in that we we grow, and not just spiritually, of course, although that's important. And if we are growing spiritually as individuals and as communities, we will be doing God's kingdom work, and we will see progress in the world. I wanted to, I, I kind of hesitated to say that word progress because it, it's not always a given that progress happens and it can be a word that's, that's misused. You know, people say things like the wrong side of history, which is kind of, kind of odd uh, because it just assumes that whatever they have in mind for the word progress is the right side of human history. And so I kind of want to avoid just using the word progress. However, we can, I think, pretty objectively declare that the last several hundred years has brought about huge progress in our world. So it's important for us to note that human flourishing is not simply progress. It's not simply the absence of violence or the absence of conflict, but it means a true human well-being that extends 
more than just personally and also within the community and even the broader world. I mean, if you can imagine that healthy individuals that are working in a way that are living in a way that is loving toward other people, maybe just loving because it's a little bit of that, you know, self-interest kind of mindset to some to some people maybe who aren't Christians, but you have individuals who are healthy and they're interacting with one another in ways that are not just avoiding conflict, but are in ways that are actually helpful to one another. You know, we talk about mutual beneficial exchange in things like that. We see human flourishing as a result when we see people working in that way. This kind of brings to mind something that people on the left often kind of make fun of the invisible hand as if people who believe in capitalism actually believe that the invisible hand is literally guiding something in the way that Christians often talk about the Holy Spirit guiding people. And I often just want to say to them, what else would you expect but flourishing and progress when people voluntarily choose to work together and do their darndest to avoid conflict by working things out through mutual exchange, uh, whether there's money involved or not, but money helps, you know, kind of lubricate the exchange and, and makes it peaceful. What else would you expect but flourishing? This isn't, this isn't rocket science. Uh, on the one hand, it's like, well, people are acting peacefully. That's what we would expect. We would expect progress. So yeah, human flourishing is a really big deal. And it's important for human flourishing that we honor individuals but then there's this component of created to be social beings. It's our design by God that we work together to promote human flourishing. Well, it's that together that we need to talk about uh, because there are many types of institutions, one of them being one that we rail against and are anti every single episode in this podcast, pretty much. And as an institute ourselves, we believe that there's the institute called the state that is founded on violence that has questionable legitimacy. Right. So that's something that we discuss here all the time throughout the podcast, throughout the website, uh, is, is this whole issue of the state as an institution and what kind of effect it has on society. Now, Doug, recently you've been reading uh, the new book by Jonah Goldberg, and you, you shared a quote here that I think really captures this well, so I'll go ahead and read this. It's, by reducing American life to the individual or the state with nothing important in the middle, we sweep aside all of the nooks and crannies of life where people live and interact. The cliche that government is just the word for the things we do together renders invisible the vast ecosystem of civil society where people voluntarily cooperate and find meaning in their lives. Now, I think that just really hits the nail right on the head. And, you know, a, a book that we've brought up a number of times on this show, I've brought it up many times, uh, and I, it really kind of Goldberg is, almost seems to be building on the shoulders of Robert Nisbet here. Well, in fact, his, on the ne very next page, he's quoting Nisbet. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, so, so Robert Nisbet was a sociologist in the 20th century, uh, and... Um, his, his book, his most famous work, was A Quest, uh, or the, the Quest for Community. And in that book, basically, one of the things that he explains, and really maybe the, the central thesis, is that the state is a counterbalancing institution that competes with all other types of institutions. So we have what we would call legitimate or natural institutions, like the family, 
the church, the business, the business, the company, the cl- the, the club, whatever, all kinds of different institutions that exist in society. Like you said, Doug, this is an institution. The LCI is another example of an institution, a voluntary, a voluntary society. All kinds of institutions throughout society. But the state is different. The state is not like any of these other institutions. Uh, for one thing, the state is the only institution that, that uh, funds itself through through theft. And we could say, okay, well, yes, criminal syndicates, gangs also fund themselves through theft. But if you look at this through kind of a Rothbardian lens, the state is really just a criminal gang that's a lot bigger and more successful than other criminal gangs. So if you're looking at it from that angle, and some people would dispute that, and that's fine, uh, because Nisbet himself was not, was not an anarcho-capitalist. But the point is that the bigger the state gets, the lesser influence is available to these more natural and rightful institutions. And that doesn't necessarily work the same way with these other institutions compared to each other. So for example, you can have a very robust uh, family institution and a very robust church institution and very robust business institutions, etc., etc. But where the state grows all of these other things necessarily lessen in their influence and their strength and their ability to really uh, impact people's lives in a positive way. And when you go back and you look, and, and Nisbet talks about this in his book, Doug, I'm not sure if Goldberg touches on this, but when you really go back and you look at kind of the history of Western civilization over the last several centuries, we, we sort of see this crescendo around Rousseau and the lead up to the French Revolution, because there's this sort of idea of uh, cutting out all the all the middlemen, all these middle institutions, and all you have are the state and the people, and the people are all subservient to the state. They they only exist primarily to to serve the state, and everything sort of feeds into the greatness of the state. And so, to the extent that you have even religion, you have a civil religion that exists to serve and glorify and grow the state. To the extent that you have families, the family unit is there to produce people and rear them up uh, for the service of the state. Uh, to the extent that you have business, it's there uh, to form a tax base for the state. So, in this in this line of thinking. Uh, the state is supreme. It is it is God, if you will, and everything else is kind of subsumed under that. And Nisbet's argument is that it is that that is basically the nature of the state: is that it 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 grabs power for itself, it amasses this power, it you can't limit it arbitrarily. It will always do whatever it can get away with in the long run, over the long course of history, to amass as much power to itself. As possible, and so this necessarily uh, leads to the diminishing of these these competing natural institutions. So you can't have a strong uh, church community, family community, things like this in, in, in a in a functional kind of open way where you have a large, powerful state. They are mutually exclusive. Yeah, I would. I'll I'll confirm that Goldberg does talk about Rousseau. He also talks about John Locke. Uh, the book that I'm that uh, 
we're referring to here is by Jonah Goldberg. He's the author of Liberal Fascism. He is uh, part of National Review. Uh, so he's definitely a conservative. But as he kind of revealed in his conversation with Russ Roberts on Econ Talk the week the book was launched, he's actually sort of becoming, you know, just nudging himself in the direction of libertarianism. And I, and I think with very few exceptions, uh, libertarians would would read this book and, and be very proud that, that a work like this is out there. So the book is called Suicide of the West, How the Rebirth of Tribalism, Populism, Nationalism, and Identity Politics is Destroying American Democracy. The question that might be kind of circulating in the back of our minds, and this is part of what Goldberg's point is, and I don't want to bring Goldberg up too much. We're talking about our core values here, but he, he just makes like a timely point when we're talking about this, is why on earth is the state's attempt to capture the imagination of human beings, why does it even have any purchase whatsoever with individuals who go to the state to allegedly or presumably find meaning in their life or to provide action that will then provide meaning? Well, the answer is human beings seek out meaning. And one of those ways is through relationships and community. And if there are mediating institutions such as church, family, and other institutions that are what we would may, may call more local, that are unable to provide a sense of meaning, then you have the state just swoop in and do that. Well, the reverse is also true. If the state is just constantly going in that direction, then those other mediating institutions are unable to do so. And so it becomes a sort of feedback loop between two ends of what we often think of as, as opposite ends of the spectrum, atomism and collectivism. And one of the other things that Goldberg talks about, which is he's actually referring to a different author in this, who the name escapes me at the moment. But what actually happens is on both ends of that spectrum, atomism on the one hand and the collectivism kind of on the other, is that alienation happens. It happens at atomism. It happens at collectivism. Atomism, because we were made for community. And if we get too atomistic, then we will feel alienated. But on the other hand, why would collectivism, you might wonder, why would collectivism make us feel alienated? It's because the state crowds out what Goldberg calls the little nooks and crannies of life where people actually live. Because, and I'm quoting Goldberg, mediating institutions provide a sense of meaning, community, and even identity that gives people a sense of belonging and fulfillment. So whenever anybody says things like, oh, well, we all belong to the government, that Democrats are very, very keen on, on kind of communicating that. Well, that just kind of creeps me out a little bit because nobody asked me to belong to it. So that's weird. And on the other hand, I find very little meaning in, oh, wow, I'm part of the federal government, or I have a little tiny itty bitty say in the federal government. What's happening is, actively, is people are playing on our alleged patriotism or, or a little bit of nationalism, you know, affinity for what it means to, quote unquote, be an American. And again, I'm speaking as an American citizen to many of our people here uh, in our in our audiences is American. So it kind of tries to appeal to that. But then there's like a bait and switch that is the state saying, ah, I will take on the cloak of being your nationalist, you know, affinity. And uh, what happens is it's kind of a bait and switch there. And it just it just leaves us alienated. And then it leaves this gap. I'll kind of just leave it there to go go find out from Goldberg what exactly that gap actually ends up producing. And if you think longer than about 20 seconds, you probably know what it means. So one of the things that this might also raise is, does this put libertarians at a rhetorical disadvantage? 
Because if we are communicating that we are all about the individual, this raises the question, does it put libertarians at a rhetorical disadvantage when it comes to talking about freedom and individual liberty? Because a lot of times what we are doing is we are anti-state because we don't see the state or whatever highest echelon of power as anywhere close to a viable substitute for those parts of life that give us value, that give us direction or, or give us meaning. And people are seeking that. And so as libertarian Christians, I mean, we already acknowledge and wholly endorse the church as an institution that can provide meaning. So we now have to kind of talk about, well, what other institutions are there? What, what does an institution even mean? And why does the composition of that institution matter? Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. So as we're thinking about what constitutes an institution, I mean, there's, there, there, there's a few different things we could talk about here. At least as far as a rightful institution, we may say, number one, it is, it is a voluntary institution, whereas the state is not a voluntary institution. Now, you might voluntarily be a, an employee of the state, but as far as actually interacting with the state, that's certainly not voluntary. Taxation is not voluntary, contrary to what some people have actually tried to argue amazingly and absurdly. Uh, it, it is not a voluntary relationship you have with the state, but it, your, your relationship to, to a church, to a business, to a civic club, a rotary club, whatever, those are voluntary. Your relationships to your friends are voluntary. To some extent, even your relationship to your family is voluntary. To some extent, not. It's, it's sort of put upon you by nature, and we can talk about there's certainly ethical, theological dynamics and obligations that come into play there, but it's still, you're not literally forced uh, to to remain there in most cases. Uh, so it, 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 is, it is a voluntary relationship. The second thing is it's cooperative, meaning that you are working together with the other members of this organization, as we talked about voluntarily, for some kind of mutual aim or goal. And the goals of the organization or the institution will, of course, vary depending on a number of factors, including what kind of institution it is and who the members are and what they value. But you have people who are voluntarily joined together, working towards some sort of mutual cooperative goal based on some kind of mutual interest that binds them together. That's, that's sort of a rough way we can sketch out what a natural free institution is, or at least what its characteristics are. In contrast, the state is none of those things. To some extent, you may say it's cooperative, but it's more that it's been forced upon people out of a supposed necessity. They're told and indoctrinated into thinking, well, of course, you, you need the state for this. You need the state for the roads. You know, is the, and, you know, we use that as a joke in libertarianism, uh, my roads. But I've actually heard people say that, like, a lot of times. And many of you listening have. That's, that's, that's not just a caricature. People really believe this, that without the state, we'd have no roads. And we'd have no security. Or we'd have no health care. We'd have no jobs. So it's just sort of a, a collective myth that's sort of been pushed on people who have been indoctrinated into thinking, oh, yes, well, of course we need the state for this or that. So you could say, to some extent, eh, the state is cooperative, but it's only cooperative to the extent that 
people have been spellbound into believing it. And it's certainly not voluntary. You have no option to just walk away or to not pay the taxes or to just say, you know what? I'm going to take care of myself. I don't want anything from the government. Don't don't protect me. Don't give me a social safety net. I'm just going to walk away and not pay your taxes and not be part of, of your civilization and, and own my own land and go about my own voluntary business with people that I want to deal with. Well, you can't do that. I, I think we're actually moving in, in the 21st century. We're seeing examples where that may become more of a reality as we see things like micronations and voluntarist societies cropping up. We've talked about that a little bit on this show. We interviewed uh, Trey Goff about that a while back. Our own Jamin Hugner is working on a project along these lines. Uh, Peter Thiel and the Seasteading Institute doing a lot of work in this area. So I think over the next few decades and centuries, we'll really start to see a lot more of this. We will start to see some of these more voluntary alternatives to the state cropping up. Okay, so now there, now here's something that we should probably talk about, and that is the varying levels of government. You know, we've been using the government or the state in this episode, and we often just use those terms interchangeably. But there is, in America, we have the concept of federalism, and there is a bunch of varying levels of government to which we quote unquote belong. And I use that word advisedly. So when we complain about the government, okay, there's a vast difference between complaining about the amount of taxes that your local jurisdiction is now charging you as opposed to last year for property, for instance, and the fact that the NSA is spying on you or the fact that your your income taxes have now increased or or whatever. You know, you can come up with any egregious actions by any level of government. And there is a varying level of voluntarism that that's here. To some extent, it's not quite fully voluntary because as Nick said, you can't just opt out. There is no option to opt out. However, you can choose to live in places that you don't pay income tax. You can move to Texas. Okay. Now there's costs to that in other ways, of course, if you don't want to live in Texas, which I, I might just add because Norman's not around, is a really good state. Uh, so it's not like I'm putting down Texas at all. But if you don't want to live in a certain jurisdiction in the state you prefer to live in or in the county or area that you want to live in, you know, you might pay a little bit more or in, in certain areas, there's other trade-offs, but you can sort of pick that. The bigger and bigger the governmental institutions that govern our, our country, the less and less voluntary it becomes. So if you feel compelled to get involved in politics, oftentimes people start at more the local level. Well, you kind of feel more involved, whether or not you actually, you know, and a lot of us actually don't vote on the local level because we don't pay close attention to it. But that's actually where we can make more of a difference if we focused on those things. And a lot of libertarians are. But I guess I just want to emphasize the point that when we talk about the government or the state, we we mostly are talking about the concentrations of power to which they become such a dominating force that there's absolutely no way of opting out of its influence. And the lower and lower you get, or I like to say the localer you get to who we are, there might be pockets of meaning, especially in very small rural communities, to where, you know, these little governing institutions, I mean, I like everything they do, but 
there is a sense in which you possibly could belong to that community. I mean, I grew up in a community in a very small area of the country that was under a couple thousand. And so while that sounds like a large number compared to a single individual, uh, it's way more possible for me to find identity uh, within that group than it is for me to find identity in the county I'm living in now, which is several hundred thousand. So I think it's just important to kind of emphasize that there is very there are varying levels of voluntary going on here, and we don't want to disparage people from feeling some sort of affinity for the people and institutions that are nearby. So whatever level of government we're talking about here, uh, we do let, let's come back to the fact that the state and pretty much every level of government is in some sense founded on violence in that that is the MO behind how they can operate. If you don't cooperate, eventually you'll find yourself at the point of a gun. So violence-based institutions are institutions that we would say have violence at the back of them. It's not that our institutions that we would call have violence as their backing. So the type of institution matters. The type of institution matters. I cannot stress that enough. It matters how we work together. That is the libertarian point that should be preached so hard toward those who are mostly on the left who think that we need to cooperate and they think that the government is the only way to do that. Well, if they think that a violence-based institution is the only way that we can uh, accomplish ends, then I would say they have an impoverished imagination. And if they're Christians and they think that the Lord needs the government to accomplish the ends of the kingdom of God, they have a pretty impotent gospel that is able to do that because that's not how the gospel works. The gospel doesn't need the state to accomplish what it exists for. Right. And I mean, one of the other things to observe here is that the state doesn't even really impart the meaning and the goals that it claims to very well at all. Uh, So, I mean, we could say that, for example, there, there, there is some value in a sense of identity that comes with the state, you know, your, your country. I mean, even, even, you know, I mean, I, I personally, I'm, I'm an anarcho-capitalist. Um, many, many of our listeners are, many aren't, whatever again, but me personally, I am, but I still, I'm still an American and I still love America. Uh, but America and the state are not the same thing, but there is a sense in which being born in a certain place, uh, in a certain context, gives rise to a part of your identity. And that's not necessarily bad. Um, When it becomes nationalistic, uh, especially aggressive against other people, then it becomes bad. But loving the place you're from and having a sense of identity from that and caring about those people, yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, so that's arguably one thing that that is, that is at least that is at least morally neutral. Let's say it, it can be corrupted and used for bad, and it often is, but it's it's not intrinsically bad. Let's say it's morally neutral, uh, but that's really one of the only things that the state kind of brings to the table uh, in in a in in a somewhat positive way. Pretty much everything else it tries to do uh, is, is is done poorly. It, it is either done uh, aggressively or through some form of, of coercion and violence and theft, uh, or, or it's just inefficient uh, because the market is better 
than the government. The government can't do anything well. The market always does it better. And if it's something that wouldn't happen on the market, then it, that means it's something that consumers don't want. So who cares if we don't have it? It's something consumers don't want. So there's, there's the sense in which the state is counterproductive and fails even on its own terms. It, it doesn't bring what it's supposed to to deliver. And then fundamentally, and we talk about this all the time at LCI, is that the ways of the state, that is to say, using state power, using state coercion to get what you want, uh, is, is not a Christian way of going about things. It's not a Christian ethic. We can say, oh, this or, or that is something wrong in society. Uh, this is something that shouldn't exist. Uh, it's something that we should we should seek to get rid of, but the way in which we do it is also important. And the state really is just a one-trick pony, and it's comply or die, uh, whereas that's not the way of the kingdom of God. It's not the ethic modeled in the New Testament, which calls us to affect change through service and ministry and prayer and love, and all these sorts of things that are that are modeled for us in in the in the life of Christ in the early church, uh, but that is not what the state does. The state the the, the state mirrors Rome, uh, and and pretty much just has that that one thing, which is you're going to comply or else. So, for all these reasons, the ethical dynamic. The, the economics and the efficiency thereof, or the lack of efficiency in the state. For all these reasons, the state is not capable of serving as a focal institution for the flourishing of human civilization. Only these natural, voluntary, cooperative institutions like family and church and other voluntary organizations are capable of actually achieving those ends. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And one thing that might be, for those of you who are minarchists out there, you might be thinking we're coming on a little strong on the anarcho-capitalism side of our organization. Uh, and, you know, of course, uh, the two of us that are talking about this lean that way. But I, I, I will say this. I don't personally expect to see an anarcho-capitalist society in full force anytime in my lifetime. That doesn't mean that as a matter of principle, I I do not value that way of looking at life and affirmation of complete nonviolence uh, when it comes to social institutions. But I will say this, insofar as the state or any level of government can be an enabler of those other institutions doing what they do well, that could be the part where the state could contribute in a sense to human flourishing. That is maybe more as a referee rather than the provider, of course. No libertarian, even a minarchist, thinks that the state should provide all these things for us. But insofar as it can actively work or even just get out of the way, which is mostly probably the best way to do it, enable or get out of the way those other mediating institutions to actually do the work, then the state, <laughs> the state can be one of those institutions that can kind of exist, but not because it's something that gives us meaning, not because it's something that gives us value or a sense of belonging. 
So that's our core value. We believe that social institutions matter for human flourishing. We want to hear what you think about that. You can email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. We have one more episode in this series, which will be part six, and that'll be talking about our final core value as the Libertarian Christian Institute. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.